Well, good morning, church. Oh, y'all awake. That's what I'm talking about. Praise God for that. Ah, oh, man. Uh, children, you may, you may be dismissed. I, I don't think they're here, but if, I'm just going to keep trying. Um, if, if we don't know each other, my name is Justin. I'm one of the elders here. Uh, uniquely, my role is to be sent out. As the planting pastor of New City Fellowship, uh, a new, yeah, 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 a new autonomous church plant uh, serving South Orlando this January. We are, we are just five short, four and a half months away uh, from our launch, and it's a really exciting time for us. Uh, as last, last Sunday night, you guys, um, I don't want to step on this, Anthony. Last Sunday night, you guys, uh, some of y'all uh, came out to our worship night, um, which went really great, and so we're really grateful for that. Just a quick praise and a quick prayer request. Um, man, just in terms of praise, like the Lord has answered our prayers. Uh, leaders have come up from within our midst, and they're leading, they're using their gifts to glorify God and for the good of the city. It's just such a marvel uh, to see uh, as, as we talk about church planting, as we talk about mission for the city and, and things we want to do and the gospel going forth, it's been just such a gift to see people from within our group say yes, yes and amen. I want to do more than just receive. I want to be a part. I want to have a hand. I want to have a voice in what God is doing here. So just a praise for that. But then there's also a prayer request uh, that you could join with us. You see, uh, we had a location that we were going to launch out of, that we were going to meet in, and due to some unforeseen things on the lo- the venues, and we no longer can do that. And so we have just a couple of months to figure out where we're going to launch out of. And uh, so if you could just pray for us, we we know that God will provide. We know that God will put us exactly where He wants us to be. Uh, but we don't want to be passively waiting. We kind of want to uh, look and move forward in that direction. And so, man, if you want to help us do that, if you want to help us make phone calls and write emails and, and scout places for, for a church plant with no money to, to find, come, come witness the miracle of God. Do something. Uh, I'd love to talk to you more back there uh, about that. Anyway, uh, y'all ready to study your Bibles? Okay, me too. We're going to be in the 15th chapter of the book of Exodus. Uh, Exodus chapter 15 this morning as we continue our series studying the names of God. It's an interesting topic for a sermon series because uh, names are such commonplace. We all have them. And, and we don't really talk about the origin of them or the meaning of them or, or you, you, you that have children. You, you've named your children particular names for a reason or maybe no reason. And, and you have a story behind that. You probably don't even share that significant story of how you uh, got to that place. I, I'll tell you a story. My mom is here, so she'll have a kick. My name doesn't mean much. Uh, my name is Justin. Uh, that doesn't tell you anything about who I am. Uh, my mom, uh, God bless her, had, had me as a teenager, and her favorite actor at the time was Dustin Hoffman. Shout out to the 80s. And, uh, well, that's Baywatch, right? What were you watching? <laughs> what? Anyway, um, and, so, and so, so, so she wanted to name me Dustin, but her cousin 
was like, well, what if he grows up to be a dork? You don't want a dorky Dustin, so name him Justin because that's cooler. And my mom was like, you're right. And so here I am. And uh, so there's like, it doesn't really tell you anything about me. Um, there's no real significance there. But, but, but here, here's the, the point in all that. In the Hebrew culture of the Bible's time, names were incredibly significant. To know someone's name is to know something of the person in a deep way. It's more than just a fact. It's more than I know your name is Jonathan and then that's it. It's more deeper than that. To know a name means to know their identity. Uh, and, And often in the scripture, as you'll read through the text, you'll see God change people's names based on a new reality he's doing in them. And, 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 and you'll see this new reality be present among them. And the name was sort of the, the place by which you would understand that. For example, Abram meant exalted father and God changed it to Abraham, meaning father of a multitude. Jacob, whose name meant grabber of the heel or deceitful after wrestling with God. God changed his name to Israel, which means one who prevails. In, in the book of Hosea, if you remember our study in the minor prophets. You'll remember that God changed the name of Hosea's children uh, based on his relationship with Israel and how it was changing. We saw Lo-Ami, which means not my people, become Ami, which means my people. Lo-Ruhama, which means not pitied, come Ruhama, which means shown compassion towards. And then in the New Testament, we see Jesus change the names of his disciples, most notably Peter, who was Simon. He says, you're Simon, son of John, you shall be Cephas, which is translated to Peter. And the significance there is that the Greek translates to Petros, which means rock. And he says later on, on this rock, I'll build my church. All that to say is in the scriptures, a name sheds light on a person purpose, a, a person's authority, a person's character, a person's name is, is seen as equivalent of that person. And so it would make sense to us that as we think on God, as we think of all that he is and all that he's capable to do, that God cannot be confined to one name. The depth of his character demands that he has many names. There is no one name that could fully encompass all that God is. And so in the scriptures, he reveals his different names to humanity uh, in different ways, displaying the full diversity of how he deals with us, how he relates to us. We've studied already in this series that his name is Yahweh, that he is the Lord, that his name is El Shaddai, that he is the almighty God, that he is Jehovah Sidkenu, our God, our righteousness. And for our time this morning, he is Jehovah Rapha, our God, our healer. Our text this morning is a story of Israel encountering Jehovah Rapha. God reveals himself to Israel as the great healer of his people. But fret not, since God is unchanging throughout the ages, then that means that when we come to his text, Israel's encounter becomes our encounter. 
There's so much for us to glean from this text, so much personal for me that I was personally challenged with. I have said confidently, and you've probably said confidently also, that God heals. But when it came to my own need for healing, how quickly I ran to other authorities instead of first running to the God who heals any malady. Instead of running to him and trusting in his healing hand, his ability to do the impossible, his unchangingness and the priceless currency that is his grace. I pray that God would stretch us all this way this morning. I want to title our time in this passage just that. Jehovah Rapha, our God, our healer. And it is my hope, family. That as we see Israel mature and be blessed by God, revealing himself in such a way that we also would be challenged and matured and come to trust God and experience him as Jehovah Rapha, our God, our healer. I also want to give a a quick, if you want to study this more, there's this beautiful book that Pastor Steve recommended to me by Dr. Tony Evans called The Power of God's Names. Uh, I leaned heavily on this book throughout this study. If you read it and you read the chapter on Jehovah Rapha and you listen back to the sermon, you might go, oh, uh, and that's because Tony Evans is smarter than me and better than me and in every way the greatest. And I leaned heavily on it. No, for real, this book is so good. I started reading the other chapters. And so I just want to throw that out there. Please go get it. Anyway, if you're able, would you stand with me for the reading of God's word? And then I want to invite you to pray for me as I pray for you, as we together hear what thus says the Lord. Exodus chapter 15, starting in verse 22. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea. And they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water at Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, what shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log, and he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule. And there he tested them, saying, if you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes. I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians for I am the Lord your healer. That's right. Then they came to Elam where they were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees and they encamped there by the water. This is God's word. Would you pray with me? God, you are great and glorious. And I even realize right now the parallel of this text in our present reality. As Israel has just finished singing praises to you, so have we. And yet some of us, myself included, are grumbling and complaining. 
Our eyes are not on what you have done, nor what you are capable to do, nor what is in your nature to do. We are focused on the season and circumstance. God, make yourself known to us this morning. Make yourself known to me this morning. Father, would you gift me with clarity of speech and thought? And would you gift the congregation with attentiveness and grace for my errors? In Christ Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Some of you may know this story. I tell it quite often. It's just so part of my family's journey and where we've been. So just allow me to share it with you one more time. In 2018, uh, we moved to Kansas City, Missouri um, for what we thought was going to be an amazing experience, Uh, a new journey. You know, my wife, she's born and bred in Puerto Rico and uh, never left the island until she moved to Florida. So leaving Florida was like a huge deal for her. Uh, Obviously, for my kids, that was significant. Um, And so it just felt like in a very exciting opportunity to see what the Lord has for us. And so the plan was we were going to go there. I was going to do this residency. We were going to get trained. We were going to get sent out to come back here and see what God would have for us. That quickly turned out to not be the case. Um, And what was supposed to be a beautiful season turned into a nightmare from the first day we got there filled with emotional and spiritual abuse. I was in trauma counseling Uh, I was depressed, an insomniac, angry, bitter. Uh, It lasted nine months, nine months before uh, my employer and I parted ways. But that didn't necessarily make things better. Uh, We were in a foreign place with few friends, no family, no church, no money, We had three kids under three years old. My wife was still recovering from a hard pregnancy and labor the year before. It it was just awful. And we begged God, get us out of here. And in three days, he delivered us from there and made it possible for us to come back here. It's the closest thing I've personally ever felt from the Exodus story. Uh, This idea of leaving a hostile situation, moving somewhere else into the wilderness. Um, We were home. We were here. It was a sigh of relief. We had family. We had friends. We didn't have a job. We we still didn't have money, but we had cross point and we had God. And as the days turned to weeks, the weeks turned to months, I grew, me personally, I grew very impatient with God. Um... I was angry uh, that I was unable to find work. I felt unfulfilled with my life. I was still suffering from the deep wounds I experienced in Kansas City. Though God had delivered us, though God had made a way for us, made the impossible possible and brought us to a place where healing and restoration was the invitation because I was not getting what I wanted from God in the way that I wanted it, I missed the invitation and walked into a private life marked by complaining and grumbling and anxiety and depression. Now, I share this with you because this is where we sort of find Israel in our text, just two chapters before. 
They were under the foot of Pharaoh. They were enslaved to Egypt, longing for the promised land escape to be a reality. They needed a miracle, and God delivered them, showing off in the process his power and authority over all things, and they fled. Just three days before the words of our text, They were running from Pharaoh and his armies and they found themselves stuck between a hard place and a wet place. Pharaoh on one side rushing to re-enslave them and on the other side lay the Red Sea. They couldn't go back and they couldn't move forward and out of nowhere God provided an escape route God through Moses split the sea and made the sea floor dry and Israel crossed through the sea and they reached the other side and when Egypt attempted to take the same route God brought the walls of the ocean's judgment crashing down on them Egypt and its army drowned that day family take note The difference in which God treats his children and his enemies. His beloved and the wicked. For his people, there is salvation, deliverance, and safety. Even when they were afraid, even when they were anxious, even when they were troubled. But for the proud, the wicked, the oppressor, God crushes them. Under the weight of the sea. How do you want to come to God? Proud, arrogant, power hungry, or lowly, humbled in recognition of your inability to get yourself out of your circumstances unless God makes a way? Israel's reality is stunning. They were indeed doomed to die. There was no human cunning, no strategy found in human imagination that that could have caused that kind of deliverance. The Red Sea experience tells us readers that our God does the impossible to deliver his people from certain death. To Israel, experiencing this miracle firsthand brought every doubter and every skeptic into full confidence of a God who loves them. And so at the top of chapter 15, we see Israel sing a great song of praise to God. They break out in a praise and worship session uh, uh, to God to, who intervened on their behalf, the, the God of their ancestors, the God of their forefathers. Look at, look at the first three chapters, our first three verses of chapter 15. Then Moses and the people of Israel, this is literally after crossing the sea. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord saying, I will sing to the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider He has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him, my father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. This is an emotional and spiritual high 
that Israel is on. They are singing of their deliverance. Family, this is a good opportunity for us to see the connection between the exodus of Egypt and our exodus we have in Christ. Israel was living in slavery, trusting in the Lamb, crossing from death to life, singing the song of salvation, embarking on a long pilgrimage, living by God's law, and finally reaching the promised land. This too is also our experience. As God's new chosen people, longing to reach the new heaven and new earth. Dietrich Bonhoeffer uh, writes it this way in his classic book, Life Together. He says, we too pass through the Red Sea, through the desert, across the Jordan, into the promised land. With Israel, we fall into doubt and unbelief. And through punishment and repentance, experience again God's help and faithfulness. All this is not mere reverie, but holy, godly reality. We are torn out of our own existence and set down in the midst of the holy history of God on earth. There God dealt with us and there he still deals with us. Our need and our sins in judgment and in grace. Look how God deals with his children. Look indeed, because the song finishes, now Israel is presented a new challenge. What lies in front of them, what's on the other side of the Red Sea is not the promised land. It's hot desert wilderness. A barren wasteland. See, if the Red Sea was salvation, then the wilderness is sanctification. In this whole story, this is the most relevant to the Christian. The wilderness journey. A process of being sanctified by God's grace. Now, if you're not saved here today, if Jesus is not your Lord and Savior, then the most, identifying path, the most identifying part of the journey is the Red Sea. But if you find yourself saved by grace this morning as Israel was, then the wilderness is our place. We remain in the wilderness all of our lives until Christ comes to bring us to the promised land. Israel finds themselves now off the back of the greatest miracle ever performed. And what faces them is the vast, difficult, unknown. Sounds like life. See, for Israel, what they thought they were going to do was go from salvation to glory. We have, but that's not the case. We have others who need to be free. As well, before they reach glory, we have work to do. And so Israel walks for three days. Three days, they find nothing to drink. Nothing to take into their bodies for hydration. I I love the contrast though, right? Notice that Israel has no water. And Egypt has found its judgment with enough water to drown them. Look at how God deals with with us. Isn't this true of life? The sinner, the unregenerate person, they, they, they usually have too much wealth. 
that they end up drowning in the flood of prosperity. With their portion of life, they are lost like Pharaoh in the proud water, succumbed to the riches of their sinful appetites. And yet God's people are often made to know the smell of poverty and yet should not be given into it. Because who feeds them? Who clothes them? Who gives them shelter? The Lord. So they are never impoverished, but they know it's a dress, so to speak. This is why the Bible makes such an emphasis on advancing the poor at all costs. This is why the first century church cared so deeply for the poor. Some of you I know for certain can testify that when you didn't know how you were going to make it, when you didn't know how the bills were going to be paid, your faithfulness to the Lord's provision never wavered. And from somewhere, somehow, God provided. How true it is that the wilderness is a hard place to be. And how true a thing in parallel is the Christian life. Often filled with as much trouble and hardships as the wilderness is barren and desolate. Please know this. Coming to Jesus will not change the fact that your life will be hard. But it does change how you go through it. Our wilderness, our life on this side of glory has purpose. And the purpose is to be conformed into the holiness, the image of Christ in this life. God does not leave you, nor does he forsake you, but instead he sanctifies you. All of our problems, all of our persecutions, all of our difficulties and doubts, all of our troubles and tensions teach us to deepen our dependence on God. To have an absolute confidence in his faithfulness towards us, knowing this keeps us from failing Paul's command to do all things without grumbling or complaining. And yet how often we fail this. After three days in the hot sun, the people grew angry and complained. Their outrage came from not having one of the most basic of human needs. The body can only go so long without water, so disappointment emerges clearly when they happen to come across a body of water that was too bitter to drink, and so they complain to God, essentially complaining to Moses. Or they complain to Moses, essentially complaining to God. How interesting, though, again, if we examine the text that just before this, they were taught, in real time, how God is greater than water. They were taught in real time just how God deals with his children by providing for them all their needs. They were taught that he is able to do all things for the flourishing of his people. And all of that went out the window the further and further time moved them away from the miracle at the sea. Coming out of the sea, God gives them a test. And actually, as we keep reading the book of Exodus, we see that God gives them a number of tests. This is the first one, a test of trust, a test of faith. Can you trust me to keep you hydrated? Can you trust me that I will provide all your needs? Family, the Israelites issue caused them to complain 
Because there was no water for them to drink. There was no visible solution for them. It did not take long for them to functionally forget all that God had done, all that he can do. The lesson for Israel just three days before was that God was bigger than water, more powerful than water. That he could do what that what he could do with water was much greater and much more miraculous than they could ever expect. Water was not the problem here. Water was the test. We're back in school, so I'll I'll help you out this way. Uh, A good teacher tests their students on what they've trained them to know. A good teacher presents a test of ideas, concepts, information you've already been given and taught. A bad teacher tests you on things you haven't learned. God is the greatest teacher. And in love, he tests his children not on the scientific matters of water, not on the human anatomy and what happens to the dehydrated, but only on the subjects in which he's already taught them, only on the subject of which they need to become experts in himself. Family, some of you are in a difficult season right now. And you might be thinking that time is the only real solution to change the circumstances that you are in. This is untrue. There is a lesson for you, a faith muscle to exercise. But with your eyes only focused on your circumstances, you'll never be able to see the test for what it really is, a moment to depend on God. So I meet with people all the time in hard seasons. And, 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 and they complain and they express their stress and overwhelmedness and their anxiety, but they'll also simultaneously say, I am trusting God. And they're always baffled when I say, then why are you stressed? Why are you anxious? Why are your emotions preaching to you and to me that despair is close? Why is the wrong course of action to you the right action? That self-preservation and self-dependence is the only logical conclusion to your experience. Might God not be teaching you to surrender and depend on him? This is the lesson for Israel here. And as readers, it is the lesson for us. Trust and dependence on the Lord. As they came tomorrow, the place of the bitter water, we read. We, the reader, sorry, need to realize that Mara is not the only designation is not only the designation of a geographical location, three days journey from the Red Sea in the wilderness of Shur, but that it's an actual place on the map of each and every one of our lives. Mara is not geographical, it's circumstantial. And we often in life come tomorrow. We often in life taste from the bitter water when we have a thirst. But as you process this family, let bitter be the metaphor to designate 
any place, any circumstance, any experience, any painful or estranged relationship through which you might be passing through. Let let bitterness be that work situation. Let bitter uh, be that ominous doctor's report. Let bitter be that difficult situation that you're crossing with your children. Let bitter be the place that Martin Luther found himself that you might uh, find yourself in today where he says, I'm tired of this thing called life. Let bitter be the thoughts of you quitting on your marriage. Let bitter be your thoughts of quitting on your children. Let bitter be the lie you believe when you believe that nobody's gone through what you've gone through. Let bitter be your sexual trauma. Let bitter be your family history. What we suffer may bitter in its may be bitter in and of itself. However, bitter as it is, it does not need to make us bitter. Again, the problem at Mara was not the water. Just as the situations you and I go through are not the problem or the point in and of themselves. Bitter though it was, it's not the problem. The problem is the bitterness that harbors in the hearts of God's people. Which is to say that the bitterness that manifests in our hearts. S.W. McKenzie, you might have heard of him. That's Pastor Steve, y'all. He put it this way to me. He said, God got Israel out of Egypt, but the bitter water was to get the Egypt out of Israel. That's my pastor, bro. That's a line. In other words, family, when you go from triumph to trouble and we respond inappropriately to the circumstances and difficulties in our lives, that should actually make us stop and consider if that was the point of the circumstance. To show, to expose where we lack trust and dependence on God. Bitterness does not come in the outward circumstance, but in the inward response. We're called not to complain, but to believe in the goodness of God. Even when he leads us to the bitter waters, let us not forget the truth. That as we read this text, we see that God meets us in bitter places. Look at verse 25. And he cried to the Lord and the Lord showed him a log. And he threw it into the water and the water became sweet. Moses, hearing the complaints of the Israelites, does not join them in complaining. He does not grumble. He knew that he himself could do nothing for this situation. So what he does is he takes his trouble to prayer. And his one prayer does more for Israel than any amount of grumbling or complaining that they do. And what God does is show Moses a piece of wood. The Hebrew here means that God actually took Moses, that he directed him to the wood or or the, the, the Hebrew would have us realize that it's a tree of some kind. And he and Moses takes wood from this tree and he throws it in the water and the wood made the water sweet and good for drinking. This is God's second miracle. And a miracle performed out of his full and rich grace and mercy. Because if we're being real, 
Like we're reading this text. If you've gone through the Exodus journey, if we're being completely honest, Israel does not deserve this miracle. God met Israel's complaining with his compassion. They're grumbling with his grace. Their impatience with his omnipotence. Israel becomes, once again in a week, direct recipients of God's supreme kindness. Family, you might be in this place this morning feeling like you are Israel. Grumbling and complaining about your circumstances. You might feel like you're no good a Christian, a, a poor representation of his people But let this text show you, church, that God takes your mistakes and makes you recipients of grace. That God takes your troubles and turns them into testimony. Find in these words the encouragement that God meets you at Mara and uses the bitter to display his grace and love for you. He takes you to the bitter waters so that you might trust in him for the water of life. Takes you to the bitter waters so that you might deepen your dependability on his ability to provide and heal. Look how the story ends. We'll start again at 25. And he cried to the Lord and the Lord showed him a log and he threw it in the water, and the water became sweet. There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule, and there he tested them, saying, if you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. And they came to a limb where there was 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees and they encamp there by the water there's three types of healing i want to emphasize i want to i want to emphasize uh, from this part of the text first god heals our circumstances let me i'll paint the picture imagine the israelites wandering the, wandering the desert for three days hopeful by every mirage of water they see only to come to it and find more sand under the blazing sun They did not complain for three days, but the text tells us after three days. I think it's a safe assumption that for three days they longed for water only for their minds to play games with them under the heat. Finally reaching Mara must have been a pure relief. Actual water, finally. And as they fell to the ground and leaned in for a drink, The water was so bitter that they dare not take a second sip. You know how thirsty a person must be that they'll drink anything? And how disgusting this water must have been for them to be that thirsty and reject any kind of liquid sustenance? The water at Mara pushed them past their patience. Relief snatched away. A cup smacked from their lips. And so they complained to God with doubtful and unbelieving hearts. Have not you and I been there before? Think about it. Reflect on it. When you were last afflicted, when the doctor last gave you a bad report, when a friend failed you, when your spouse failed you, when the bank account was low, 
when you failed at work or you brought trouble on yourself because of a poor decision, when last your heart turned on you and caused you pain, when you were ready to die, when you were at your end, when the burden that was more than you could have ever bear, did God not deliver you? No. As Israel approached the bitter waters, God made the water sweet. He healed their circumstances. In your past circumstances, you have a lifetime of maras that have been made sweet. And you should recall on those when doubt and unbelief creeps at your heart. When you begin to slip, may God help you remember those miracles. In each of these moments, did he not teach you how to have more faith in him? How to surrender yourself more deeply to him? How to turn from your sin more truly? How to cling to him for hope? How to be brave by his grace? I know somebody in here has seen the wood touch the water before. I know one of you can testify that God made your bitter water sweet. And at the end of it all, every time you found love, grace, and mercy covering you all the days of your life. And guess what, family? He'll do it again. God healed Israel's circumstances. Church, remember it and don't you forget it. Our Lord, our healer will heal your circumstances too. Second, God heals our bodies. God tells Israel, if you listen to me and do what I've commanded, the diseases that came to Egypt will never come to you. This is interesting because we could misinterpret this in two ways. First, this is not a command that brings salvation. God is not saying, listen to me, follow my commands, and I will save you. No, then our salvation would be by works. And we know from Ephesians 2 that we have been saved by grace, not an act of our own will, accord, or ability. God saved us. And so it is true of Israel. The Red Sea was their salvation moment. From the Red Sea, people in Israel came to saving faith. So if this command is not for our salvation, then it must be for our sanctification. In other words, God is saying, I have saved you because I love you. Here are some things I want you to do. So this is not salvific. This is sanctifying. Calling us to practice trust and faith in him for all things. Second, all of our bodies, all of our bodies Feel the afflictions of sickness and disease. I stand before you right now with a present affliction. I know not the cause. I know not how to describe. And I know not the remedy for it. But the promise is not about the present body. Because you and I will fail God's commandments. God is not a liar. And so this is an impossible task for us which God knew and therefore sent somebody else to take on this covenant to make sure that his children never experience the true affliction of their bodies, which is never seeing the glorification of their persons, but experiencing the burning of it in Hades. 
God sent Jesus to take on the full weight of every command and law so that you might have every promise and every piece of comfort for all your days as you, by the power of the Holy Spirit, move towards obedience in his word. See, the best healing God can offer is prevention. And what God has done in Jesus is prevent you from falling in the fiery lake. But also, don't get this wrong. God does definitely heal the present body. When the doctors say we have time left, when we leave, we leave that in God's hands. When the thorns of sickness and disease press upon our body, we ask, we beg for God to heal us. We leave it in God's hands. In Christ, we see that he, will not, that he is not only able, but that he is willing to heal us. That's the heart of our God. A God who can not only heal us, but wants to heal us. So we pray at all times, every day, full of confidence that God can heal every malady. As the apostles say in the New Testament, if any is sick, let him send for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Family, the Lord is our cure. And lastly, I'll close with this. Our God heals our souls. God took the Israelites from triumph to trouble to test to triumph again. When you read the words of this passage, there is a gospel in these verses that I hope you did not miss. Exodus 15 ends with God bringing his people to a healing place. A place with 12 fountains. That's interesting. One for each house of Israel. Seventy palm trees. Also interesting. One for every elder. In other words, they were given what they needed in Mara, but given more than what was needed, was given abundance in Elim. Is that not true of how God deals with us? Jesus says, who clothes you, who feeds you, who gives you shelter? Essentially, who gives you what you need? God. But praise him that that's not where he leaves the sermon. He says, if he provides that for the animals, the beasts of the sea and the birds of the air needs, for them, how much more will he provide for his children? Oh, think on your blessings, family. The closets full of clothes. The children's playrooms with toys. Our pieces of entertainment. I'm not asking you to be uh, sad about those things or grieve those things. I'm telling you, praise God for them. Because you have needs, but God has given you more in abundance. This is undeniably true. We have more than what we need, and yet we would be foolish to believe that that's what these verses mean alone. 
No, there is a gift, a healing that God gives that is better than water from a well because what he gives in Jesus is the water of life. Jesus says, if any is thirsty, let them come to me and drink. But that's not all that Jesus is. He's a shade that's better than palm trees. The psalmist says that he's not just a shade from the sun. He's a shelter protecting you, keeping you from all things. Jesus Christ is our Lord, our healer, passing every test of God in my place and yours so that every promise would be yes and amen for you and me. Can't you see? Can't you see that he is the wood thrown into the bitter and making it sweet? Can't you see that Moses' tree is a reflection, a picture, an illustration of the tree whose wood Christ would be placed upon, taking on the full bitterness of sin and soaking it up so that the sweetness of glory would pour out from him instead. We are the ones who are covered in the sweetness of Jesus' blood and righteousness, traveling the wilderness, being tested and coming out sanctified, more like Christ each passing day. And at the end, we won't see Elam, we won't even see Canaan, but we'll see the true promised land, a new heaven and a new earth, which shows us that God will heal this earth from its afflictions. We'll spend every day of eternity in our healed bodies glorifying the Father for he has healed all of our circumstances. He is Jehovah Rapha, not just God, my God who heals me, your God who heals you and the whole world outside is rotting from the grip of sin and death and they need to know that Jehovah Rapha is not just able but he's willing 